The subject of the talk this evening is enlightenment near or far. <laughs> we are often insufficiently um, aware of the influences which affect and govern the way that we look at our existence, our personal existence, and our social existence. We're not sufficiently aware of some of the schools of thought which in the last two or three centuries have exerted their influence into the society and thus certain attitudes, values and standards have been adopted. And <coughs> coming from a country like Britain, one becomes aware, generally through some reading, through some study, through conversation, how certain philosophers, British philosophers, adopted a certain set of values and this, in the course of time, filtered down to people, generally via the, the educational system. And one brings to mind such people as Newton with the mechanistic theory and Bacon with the idea of knowledge as power, the whole theory of people like Hobbes, another philosopher with a kind of uh, attitude of self-interest being of major importance, etc., etc. And the combination of these ideas have come into our world and it is, has and is producing a society based on some of these ideas. And so we find ourselves living in a society with tremendous emphasis on technological progress, tremendous emphasis on the exploitation and domination of the earth, and on the pursuit of knowledge. And with it, of course, science being set up as the arbiter of all truth without <coughs> basically any real moral consideration. Technological progress for its own sake. All that tends to influence us, we adopt that, identify, that, identify with that, and one of the ways that, that most easily shows itself is with the frequency in which our mind tends to create thoughts about what I would like. The next new thing, the next new gadget, etc., etc. All of that is part of a historical process infiltrating us as human beings. Many, 
and certainly many of you, have to some degree or other looked at that and by the very fact of your being here and my being here means to some degree or other there is a question of the accepted value system of our time and there is some kind of inquiry which says perhaps there is available an alternative value system. And so one begins to move away from one way of living and being and acting towards another which offers something different. What easily happens in that movement away from one and the movement away, I'm sorry, the movement towards something else that one identifies with what one is moving towards and that becomes the, the model of truth. person feels dissatisfied with Western culture, Western society, Western uh, values, Western way of life, and there comes into the mind a fascination, a preoccupation with, with that which is non-Western, with that which is Eastern. And this begins to show itself in the adherence and sometimes quite blind adherence to religious forms, to method um, and technique, to the past, and somehow or other, some other place, some other society, some other culture seems to oneself to be especially attractive. And in that movement away from one thing and the movement towards something else, it can also be that in the doing that one simply adopts something else. Becomes identified, attached to it, and it creates its own blind spot in the finding of truth. Sometimes people who do practice and perhaps follow the Buddhist way of practice with the various emphasis which is involved with that begin to believe or assume that there must be a Buddhist society and a Buddhist culture uh, where there's a great deal of, uh, of more noble values, more ethical standing and more humane relationship to society, etc., etc., only to find that in going to these places where there's to a Buddhist country in some other part of the world or, some, or a country which is non-industrial, a culture which is non-industrial, to find one's face with one's own disappointments. That wherever one goes in this world, it seems there seems to be the hallmark within any culture in this world, a tremendous amount of superstition, a tremendous amount of falseness, a tremendous amount of pain. 
and therefore in coming into a little more realism in our life and find, finding truth is the movement towards seeing more re realistically, one is no more likely to find quote-unquote enlightened human beings in the East than one is in the West. No more likely at all. And if I may say, that is coming from about 10 years living in the East. So we look at a situation, we're looking outwardly at a, situa outwardly at a situation, and in this looking outwardly, one begins to feel perhaps in a little bit more honesty outwardly and inwardly that finding models of enlightenment outside of one's society, outside of one's culture, outside of oneself is looking in the wrong direction. No matter what anybody has ever told you. So when we're speaking about enlightenment near or far, it's a confused mind which says far, Japan, Burma, Thailand, India, Sri Lanka, what are these other places, whatever, Tibet or wherever it might be. And it's a confused mind which says near, near California <laughs> near here, near there or whatever somehow or other embodied in some individual and so one's in coming to look and to find truth and reality and what that truly means there must be some kind of letting go of models and frameworks and reference points and that externalization of one's own mind and there is a particular propensity towards this in some societies and one of them is this society of America which has the tendency towards creating heroes. And it's a kind of cowboy culture that does that. <laughs> <laughs> and so with it, when I was observing, particularly at the present time, this is still enlightenment near or far outside of oneself firstly and then we'll deal with the inside in a minute that it, there's still this tendency and a very strong and noticeable tendency to create heroes whatever form or garb that they may have 
and in that crea creation of them, so easily the mind tries to see all goodness or whatever in that particular individual. Then come the doubts, and one has to do something with the doubts which come. Either one suppresses them, say, no, it's just me, it's just my way of seeing, and, and I don't, can't be seeing properly, whatever. And there's a kind of attempt to rationalize away one's doubts. Or the doubts become a form of total rejection and anger and bitterness and resentment. And that's likely to occur in life with any human being who is being exalted out of truth and reality. And there's no way a human being is going to find and no enlightenment without truth and reality. No way. So the needs to be within side of ourself and in the looking outside of ourself a greater sense of realism because realism brings honesty and honesty is truth. And in that communication in that observation in, and in that awareness we come in such an important step in life we begin to come to make steps in our life away from putting up and putting down away from this monstrous divisiveness which sets some people up and puts other people down And we have this, of course, very noticeably in the, in the media, and we tend to imitate the media. The media which creates the personalities, the infatuation and preoccupation with the personalities. They become something, they become an entity. A little while later, that person becomes a non-entity, and when one is a non-entity, it's incredibly painful. And so there's the cruel world that we live in. It's creating and dismissing people, creating and dismissing people, creating and dismissing people for entertainment purposes. And we easily fall into that trap in the way that we relate to other human beings. If that person's important, it so affects our us. And if that person is, we consider is uh, secondary and having no real meaning for oneself in life, we tend to walk over that person, psychologically speaking. Thus we create a division between those who are good, important, those who know and have become something, and those who we consider are nothing. What sort of enlightened way of seeing is that? And it's hard for the mind to be free from that syndrome. And therefore it's hard for the mind to get warm to enlightenment. So 
the more we see the emperor is without clothes, the better for all. In looking outwardly at, this, at that, we begin to take the emphasis and to some extent the pressure off ourselves to adhere to, to belong to, to identify with, to build up in any way. And when one loses that interest, that itself is remarkably freeing. It's remarkably freeing to be able to look at another human being. It doesn't matter what his status is, what she does, or whatever she's supposed to, or he is supposed to have attained. One just doesn't concern oneself with that. One is simply able to look at someone, whether that person is categorized as a Zen master, or a five-year-old child, or a great guru, or a, a person um, just sitting and observing their breath, or whatever. That one is not confused by the apparent labels, the apparent forms, the apparent appearances of people. The growing capacity in one's own mind to be able to do that, to be equally open to all, whoever, whatever, where and wherever, is remarkably freeing for consciousness. That as an outer application in, one is, in, one, in which one is not projecting mother and father onto every human being that we come across who looks, feel, we feel is special, coming out of that syndrome of mind means that the mind begins to feel comfortable and confident in itself. And enlightening seeing takes, becomes that one step closer to reality. Enlightened seeing must surely, if it has any kind of meaning in our social world, must be one which is a seeing which transcends divisiveness. But that, of course, is an important step, a valuable step, and a necessary step for the intelligent development of a human being. But it must go further than that. What happens when we come to ourselves and the, the actuality, the, real, the reality of, of ourselves? And to seeing in an enlightened way which transcends division, West, East, culture, religion, philosophy, background, thought. What happens when we actually come to the state of our, our being? Which becomes more effective as we develop a more even-mindedness to others who we meet, to others who we hear about. 
in which we're not forming any fixed conclusions based on a short or long experience. So our first step is a certain evenness towards others, whoever they, he, she may be, and in that, what does it mean, enlightenment near or far, as far as oneself is concerned? The very course of meditation and the course of practice itself is such that the characteristics of it is that at times we feel very far from something and we don't realize that we're very near. At times we feel near and we don't realize that we're very far. And <laughs> maybe most times we haven't got a clue. <laughs> <laughs> We don't know if we're near or far. <laughs> so what does that mean if we use this concept, which if I may say, uh, perhaps using for the first time in five years, this concept of enlightenment as far as near or far is concerned. The reason, a fairly obvious reason I don't like using this concept because uh, rather unfortunately it's got such a charge to it that it's been, like many of these public and famous figures and infamous figures, it's got blown completely out of proportion. And therefore one hears this concept and with it comes the expectation of some almighty flash. <laughs> And if that is enlightenment, I hope to God that it never happens to you. <laughs> so when we speak of this near and far, what, what does that mean as far as the state of human consciousness is concerned? In giving In giving a direction to our mind, one of the dilemmas which occurs and which comes up in the very course of the meditative journey is how much effort do I apply to what I am doing? Keeping it initially in very simple terms. How much do I work hard on my practice? How, to what extent do I bring, try to develop and impose upon myself a degree of concentration power to make something happen in my consciousness? It may be just for the motive of being far more concentrated. It may be to, as it were, move the 
consciousness along into a, a firm, strong, disciplined, steady state. How far do I push that? And sometimes the dilemma which comes and which is frequently brought up, should I take a more laid-back kind of attitude of simply quietly setting, settling in, not trying to develop a strong concentration power, but just allowing things to unfold themselves. And in that, especially when one is exposed to the field of meditation from teachers, from reading, etc., one so easily gets mixed messages. One of more just settling in and all that is implied, one of developing a strong concentration power. And one is faced with the question, which is preferable? And for that, you have to decide. How can somebody else outside of yourself tell you what to do with your own mind? And so it is a certain degree of experimentation within oneself, a certain exploration, a certain willingness to look into one's own state of consciousness to see which is more appropriate. And that is a factor of self-knowledge. So for some people, being a little bit more settled, not being hard and pushing on oneself, um, just the quiet bringing of the attention back, being quietly aware of the movements and states of mind which come up, and taking that kind of approach is completely appropriate. developing, shall we say, and putting an emphasis on a, on, a, on a gradual and quiet and sustained mindfulness throughout the day without pushing oneself. Just genuinely sustaining a, 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 mindful, a mindfulness throughout the, the diversity of activity through the day. The date that can be very useful, necessary, provide more self-knowledge and understanding, but the danger of it is that it leads to dullness, it leads to a kind of comfortable, pleasant state of mind, body, and in that comfortableness and pleasantness one stagnates. And in stagnation one is far from a transcendent seeing. So in looking in our effort, in our willingness to look realistically and honestly with oneself, one is asking oneself, is this appropriate for me? Not forcing, not striving, not putting out a, a lot of effort, but just quietly sustaining mindfulness and attentiveness during the day, is this appropriate? Am I learning through this? Or is it basically I'm comfortable in this 
and this comfortableness I am unwilling to sacrifice. The state of being comfortable. Similarly, in giving consideration and direct consideration to concentration, to focus, to discipline, to firmness, to the um, strict bringing of one's attention back and developing a certain concentrated power that certainly can be valuable, one doesn't rest, become comfortable, one is always sensing that one is just stretching oneself that little bit further. One is shaving that the hours of sleep. One is reducing the degree of, uh, of eating. One is living a day very disciplined, sharply disciplined. And all of that can be, again, a useful and valid training for the mind, meditatively, spiritually speaking. There's a definite value to that. But it can work against one. It can create tension, pressure. It can, it can reinforce willpower and the striving mind. It can make one very much goal-orientated. It can breed dissatisfaction because one feels one's not able to do it, etc., etc. So in either way of approach or looking, meditatively speaking, you decide for yourself and I will decide for myself. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, this, so meditation is an investigative approach. It's not just you listening to, to Toffee Bob, whoever he or she is up the front, <laughs> and saying, that's the way it ought to be. But we have the freedom. And freedom is an expression of an enlightened seeing. We have the freedom to see and find out for ourselves, to be, have that freedom to explore both fully and expansively, and what that means as far as the state of our human consciousness is concerned. And some people have spent far too long in one pattern or the other of aimlessly switching back and forth between push, pushing oneself too hard and slacking off and pushing oneself and slacking off and have not given themselves the opportunity to understand what is the state of being in either. In the development of meditation practice, with all the inquiry and exploration, <coughs> there are at times the real feeling inside of oneself that one is very far away. That one has a vague vision or idea. It may be an unworded one, let us say, but a, a vague intimation or whatever of working towards something. 
Whatever concept we use doesn't matter. And one experiences this feeling of being far from. And one of the areas that that is most noticeable and characteristic of when we feel very far away is a time when we can feel, when we are, in truth, in reality, very close. Let me explain. One finds oneself in a situation which we refer to as a, as a dilemma. And a dilemma in life, not something which you and I dream up, well, I've got nothing to do, I think I'll create a dilemma for the day. <laughs> but rather, a dilemma being an actual occurrence in the mind in which two issues in the mind are presented and within those two issues there's a choice to be made. Each one to a degree, equally appealing. I could do this, however, I could do that. And one might say, the longer this dilemma sustains itself in one's mind, the better. One's tendency of mind in a dilemma, I'm not talking about the little dilemma, shall I sit another two minutes or go and have a glass of water. I'm talking about an issue in the mind which is occurring with some frequency in which that duality which is present inside of oneself has a reality to it which is sustained. And you know it. It, it has both have a, a substance to it. And one feels here I am faced with this, it's blocking, it's stopping me. If I can get rid of this, whatever it might be, go to sleep or crack one on the head or one of these two uh, elements of the conflict or difficulty, if I can get rid of this situation, it'll be great because once I've got, got this behind me, it's going to be plain sailing and then this reaching the other shore and dipping in the ocean <laughs> is all going to be so abundantly beautiful and obvious. So one feels in the face of a conflict, a dilemma, in the meditation situation, one does feel one is far away from truth, from reality, therefore from enlightenment. But the truth is, one is never so near. And this the mind cannot comprehend. Such a mind we've got. Why, why, why is this, this dilemma having potentially an extraordinary value and carrying with it not apart from it, with it, a transcendent message.
Let us look another way. One's meditation practice too also includes the movement of mind in which contrast or dilemma or conflict, that's an intensified dilemma, is noticeably reduced and that is certainly part of the function of meditation. It is to develop an equanimous state of being and in that equanimous state of being one moves, the mind moves and gravitates itself organically and in that there comes about a firmness and steadiness of being which enables one to see things evenly. Just as we have referred to uh, a little while ago, learning to see all human beings, whatever shape, size, background, etc., etc., evenly, that equally applies to uh, the seeing of ourselves to a state of being in which there is an evenness and a steadiness there and meditation is a direct support for that steadiness to become a reality for us. And so what I'm saying, or what I'm trying to encourage here, is that when there is energy and there is focus and there is awareness whether it's in the face of a dilemma or whether it's that energy is balanced and even, both of them are a key, are an essential meeting with truth which is enlightening. And it is just that in one, in the dilemma, it seems that we are far from and the truth is we're never so close. And in the other one, so easily, when the mind which is firm and steady and obs observing without any effort whatsoever, in that too one is so close to a seeing which is not conventional. Let us look at the first one. Any kind of intimations of a transcendent seeing must, by its implication, mean that duality as such is recognized as not being so substantial as it appears. Transcendent seeing carries with it the message of non-duality. And therefore, wherever one is experiencing a mode of duality very, very obvious to one's mind, therein is the potential for non-dual seeing. A non-dual seeing is developing with the presence of that duality, a seeing free from preferences. 
if anybody today has been experiencing and is recognizing a dual state of mind very clearly about being here or being there, about this or that, whether to do this or that or whatever, right there and then is one's meditation practice. Right, right therein is the learning to see free from any preference. And if we can develop and find out what that means to see from any preference, out of that will come a seeing which brings its own liberation and momentum. And for that, we have to learn to acknowledge reality instead of making it the primary purpose of our motivation, which is to get rid of it. To change our way of looking at it. And for that, experiment, reflection, working with, learning to accommodate, learning to be in touch with, learning to appreciate. Instead of this primary drive, this conflict is there, I don't like it, I want it to go. And if it goes away, oh, what a pity. And in rather the same way, in giving consideration to the movement and expression of mind, which is firm and, and steady, and therefore not as... Is, and one is not exposed to a duality within that, an obvious duality within that period of time, that firmness and steadiness in itself is not enough. Why? Why? Why is it unsatisfactory to call a halt to seeing because one is steady and calm and relaxed and has a certain degree of self-knowledge which makes one's life more steady and uh, settled? Human consciousness cannot rest there and say, well, great, I'm a psychologically healthy human being. Great. <laughs> Even that carries within it its own inherent limitations. And thus there needs to and has to come in an awareness which is more and more of the order of actually transcending the state of mind as it is presented to us. Whether the state of mind which is presented to us which is dualistic in its presentation, or the state of mind which is presented to us, which is firm and steady and calm and in a state of psychological health. And to enable that seeing to come in, 
then there is the true potential for transcendent seeing. A seeing which transcends the given state of being in the, of the present. And then enlightenment is no longer near or far. Enlightenment no longer has any connection to a big flash and a bang. Enlightenment is no longer going towards anything or coming away from anything. And then is truly, there is this indivisibility. A transcendent non-preference. And one hasn't moved for one moment away from the given truth or reality of that moment. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings see to the expressions of existence. May all beings know transcendent seeing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.